you have a creature that you can fly with that is not of our own species, but of our own spiritual oneness that we'd come together and join, and we go over the moon. Fantastic idea, and it needs great sweep in the music and great feeling of freedom. Freedom being, in this case, the, the loss of gravity. We speed up, speed up beyond escape velocity, we lose gravity, and we're now in space, and we are finally free. What do we have to do musically to accompany a thing like that? I look for a melody. All these intervals that reach up, up, up all the time, you know, to, to stretch the musical grammar to give this kind of feeling. And then in performance, the same thing. I don't know what that's more like ballet, that's more like a certain kind of energy of, of how you make, you've got a hundred piece symphony orchestra, how do you make it feel like it's gonna come right off the floor? and not be all these heavy people playing violins, but with luft, lift. And when you get that feeling, you fill your heart with it because it's take like a take deep breath of wonderful air and you feel free. That was John Williams, and this is Underscore, a podcast of music and story. Welcome back to Underscore, the show that celebrates the rich tradition of movie music, one film at a time. I am Marty Brueggemann, and with me as always is my brother Will. We are thrilled to jump right into our next film score analysis. And uh, to celebrate our fifth film here on Underscore, we're going to turn our attention to perhaps the most rich, awe-inspiring, and truly moving score ever composed for cinema. This month, we will be exploring John Williams' score to Steven Spielberg's E.T., The Extraterrestrial. We will hold for applause. This marks the first occasion on Underscore of both a returning composer and director. Up until this point, we've aimed to showcase a variety of films, composers, genres, as well as attempted to curate a film sequence that we hope keeps the palette fresh while still celebrating some of the classic scores of the medium. However, we also want to make no mistake about really our intentions for the show, being that it's a celebration of our personal favorite film scores, and to a lesser extent, our favorite films. Now, some of you might be a bit surprised by our choice to focus on on another classic Spielberg-Williams collaboration, considering all the incredible composers we haven't yet shown a light on. We want you to know, though, that by no means are we planning on overlooking the Goldsmiths, Newmans, and Giacchinos out there. But at the same time, we can't deny one of the principal aims of our show, which is quite frankly an attempt to know and better understand the unmistakably singular music of John Williams. For those who are anxious to hear score analyses from the many other brilliant masters in this field, rest assured we are eager as well, and they are indeed coming. With the context of our previous episodes exploring the orchestra itself, we feel well prepared to dig into a rich symphonic score like E.T. with all its complexity and sincerity. Well, shall we begin? We shall. Uh, As the title of the episode suggests, and as you may have come to expect from the format of this show, today's episode will be an examination and analysis of the central theme to E.T. the Extraterrestrial, the flying theme.
Recently, when John Williams was awarded the AFI Life Achievement Award, the moment which Steven Spielberg, you know, his collaborator of over 40 years, chose to represent John, quote-unquote, creating movie magic, was this unforgettable moment when Elliot's bike reaches escape velocity and the hearts and imaginations of children around the world were transformed by this incredible theme. In our humble opinions, it really is one of the greatest themes cinema has to offer. This marriage of Stephen's images with John's music, simply magical. Well, there's so much that's already been said about it, but in a way there can never be enough said. When this music literally kicks off, Elliot isn't the only one soaring through the sky. It really feels like the entire audience is swept up in an almost visceral experience, which is the sheer joy of flying. And over the years, we've been treated to so many wonderful themes centered around flight in John Williams' career. Yeah, it really is one of the singular ideas, narratively, that he has time and time again put to music. The idea of flight, whether it comes from a broomstick in Harry Potter with Superman or with this example in E.T., it's such an important part of his output. Absolutely. And a slight tangent, when Alvina and I last saw John Williams perform with the Chicago Symphony, he dedicated a moment to the history of flight in cinema. And there was this wonderful video montage that was set to Flight to Neverland from Hook. Mm -hmm. And it didn't only feature clips from John Williams' films, but it was really amazing just how many wonderful sort of flight-based memorable movie moments there were that John has underscored throughout the years. It is interesting. I have, and I know you do as well, Marty, some of the Hal Leonard Signature Edition John Williams Orchestra scores uh, because they're just great studying material. And I think in both the E.T. and in that Flight to Neverland example, in kind of the composer notes within the front page, he talks about, you know, since the invention of flight, you know, man has always been fascinated with this idea. And I think it's something that's very personal to him. It's a feeling that he probably has been fond of ever since he was a little kid in something that cinema has always given to him. And it's something that he very literally has given to so many people. Now, many of us are quite familiar with this theme and perhaps even this specific concert arrangement that we're focusing on today for the flying theme, but we are going to really dig in and examine both the theme itself, its melody, harmony, orchestration, as well as some of the details of this particular arrangement. So let's get into the melody itself. When we look at the melody, we notice that it begins with the interval of a perfect fifth, which, as we will notice in the weeks to come, is featured throughout this score in a very prominent role. In fact, it's actually the foundation for nearly all of the thematic material in this film. Which is really something, and actually it sort of caught both Will and I by surprise as we were doing some of our initial uh, research mm-hmm. and really diving back into this uh, incredible score. Because as we'll find, yes, sometimes um, it's the interval of a fifth with a leap up. Sometimes it's a leap down. Sometimes it doesn't happen at the start of the melody. It's more at a cadence point. Sometimes quite often, intervallically, it falls within different parts of the scale. Right, Say so it's a not necessarily fifth, the tonic. Yeah, exactly. The perfect fifth could go from tonic to dominant, or it could go from third to major seventh. In this instance, uh, we begin in 
C major with the notes C and G, and the melody uh, quickly proceeds down the major scale, and we actually imply all of the notes in our tonic triad C major. It's interesting to note that in this first passage, we are treated to the Puego Ionian natural fourth scale degree, and not its raised Lydian cousin, despite the Lydian mode being a prominent feature of this film, and really much of this theme. Yeah, particularly uh, in the B section material, much in the way that we described the theme to Raiders as being built out of a simple sequence, if you can remember, of notes, you might say that this theme to E.T. gets the bulk of its momentum from an even simpler two-note motif, that one to five or C to G. It begins our opening phrase, as we mentioned, with a fifth leap, and we actually end this first little phrase with a fourth leap down once again from C to G. And when we invert the interval of a perfect fifth, we get the interval of a perfect fourth. So by the very opening statement, yeah, da, 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 there's something so satisfied and complete about it. The fact that it has so much emphasis on these open, perfect chord tones, the tonic and the dominant. Now, both of these instances, the perfect fifth up and the perfect fourth down, feature an identical rhythm and place within the bar line. And as the melody proceeds, we notice that this two-note motive continues, both getting higher and higher and ultimately featuring greater and greater interval leaps. To understand the effectiveness of this incredible melody, we need to examine its principal rhythms. Now, first of all, this melody occurs in 3-2, meaning that there's three beats in every measure. Uh, you may remember when we discussed the score to Amelie, we talked about the musical form of a waltz and that being in 3-4. Uh, this theme to E.T. exists in 3-2. The two is actually referring to the beat itself, so it's half notes. And as we mentioned, this melody is driven by a two-note idea, and that two-note idea always occurs as a pair of half notes. Da, 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 da. So there really is the emphasis on that C to G relationship. And beyond that, the melody essentially consists of these half-note pairs followed by a brief uh, responsatory eighth-note passage. And this idea, transposed through the harmonic sequence, precedes the half-note leap with three scale steps down in its first instance from F to D, and then one step back up. It, it almost sounds like a certain type of classical ornament called a turn, which is used quite often in the music of the 17th and 18th centuries. And it's the same idea here in this little passage where a note is approached starting from above, landing on the goal note, one note below, and then back up to the goal. I think this turn-like statement within the theme helps to give it some weight as a classical melody. To me, it almost sounds like the meat and potatoes of the orchestra. It feels just so incredibly natural within that symphonic context. Like it's something that's intuitive for those instruments and I think really perfect for a presentation in lyrical string octaves like we have here. Oh, absolutely. Really, in the DNA of the melody itself, it's meant to be in the orchestra. Yeah, and as we talk about a lot of great Williams themes, is that the classical lineage is such a big part of his writing, yet he does just as much to set it apart from that, melodically, harmonically, in terms of orchestration, all of it. But it's finding that, that perfect mix that I think is really important in understanding Williams' writing. So true. 
Towards the end of the melodic phrase here, our eighth note uh, response idea is substituted for an even faster 16th note flurry. Uh, and this idea is similar in nature because it seems to start in one direction and then reverses. Uh, however, unlike the turn, this little sequence of notes continues upwards towards its goal note. We were talking earlier, Will, and we were reminded subtly of something that Alan Silvestri does in Back to the Future, where there's this sense that the rhythmic momentum starts to increase as the theme progresses. Now, like many effective melodies, the trend of this tune is up, up, up. <laughs> and I think in a simple way, those leaps and ascending lines really communicate the literal upward nature of flying. There's a stability in the long notes, those half notes, that sound like soaring. You can imagine, you know, the feeling of aviation where you're almost gliding through the air. But there's this frenetic propeller, or in this case, a pedaling quality to the faster note runs that altogether really depict all the emotional associations of flying through the night sky. One last uh, significant tidbit to add when talking about the A section is the ending or cadence of the phrase. Right. And it's a section of music that we hear twice in this presentation. The first time resolving, or perhaps not resolving, depending sort of how you're looking at it in terms of harmonic analysis, to the major seventh. And then the second time, it moves upward to the major ninth degree. And both times we're treated to this double dotted rhythm, which adds this splash of intensity to that closing phrase and actually sets up a new motive, which is further developed in the B section. Well, now we want to talk about the harmony. If you remember our analysis of the Raiders March, we kind of <laughs> did this similar kind of breakdown where we look at the melody, we look at the harmony, we look at the orchestration, because with a piece like this that is so part of our culture, you almost have to be a little bit intellectual about breaking it down, because I know we all have so many emotional associations, but I think it's important for us to examine all of the divisible aspects of this piece of music so we can better understand how it was composed and why it's so darn effective. So as we mentioned earlier, this piece began begins in C major, but it's not long before we do some pretty adventurous harmonic acrobatics. <laughs> That's so true. Uh, the first chord sound that we hear is essentially a C triad, but with the second degree of the scale added, and it's really wedged right in between the root and the third. Now, some might consider this pitch the ninth degree because a major seventh is implied by some of the string counterpoint and woodwind runs. Um, but for our purpose, we might think of that snugly second scale degree as part of a tone cluster, a group of pitches in which not every note has a traditional functional harmonic purpose or resolution. The added notes are simply there for tonal color. In the intro, we also hear a second chord, which sounds a bit like what we might call a suspended chord built on the tonic, but with that persnickety second scale degree still <laughs> present, which if we remember our look at the Raiders March featured a similar moment that somewhat obscured a functional tonal progression. But interesting to think of how those two intros evoke such different emotions. Yeah, absolutely. And when the melody comes in, our clustery C major chord lasts for two bars. Bars, and then as the melody rises higher and higher, as we mentioned, we're presented with a sort of D major chord with a C in the bass. And this is the chord that makes us feel as though we are in that Lydian mode we so love. Even though in the previous bars, we were hearing F naturals instead of F sharps. Yeah, it's not unlike some moments we've heard already from Williams that we called out in our Lydian episode, say the uh, flying scene, perhaps not coincidentally, from Superman or uh, Yoda's theme. 
funnily enough, both of those pieces of music seem to have some kind of relationship with this film. Uh, but that moment uh, that Will just mentioned, that C in the bass really only adds to the Lydian effect here, uh, because as we discussed in that Woodian real change. If we were to think of this as, say, a D7 chord uh, as a secondary dominant, it really wouldn't be as common for the seventh to be in the bass. Exactly, yeah. And I think there is this flirting between Ionian and Lydian that Williams just handles with so much elegance and I would say just experience because there's like this sleight of hand between the F sharps and F naturals and used for great effect. Uh, next in our harmonic sequence, we move to a G major seven chord with a B in the bass. We could think of it as being in first inversion. And what's interesting about how John voices these chords is that he seems to enjoy voicings that place the dissonant pitches of the chord right next to each other, almost obscuring them. In this G major seven, the F sharp and G are right next to each other in the French horns. And this exploits that minor second interval, which like the tone clusters we were mentioning, provide an even juicier tonal color. That's such an excellent point, Will, and I think that starts to really touch on that singular voice of John Williams that right. we alluded to earlier. We all know that John has this really rich jazz background, but I think sometimes it's almost difficult to reconcile that when listening to his great film orchestral repertoire. Yeah, he's almost disguising the jazziness of these chords, and rather than right. voicing them out in even thirds, he almost really enjoys finding these dissonant, crunchy, close voicings. And that's a level of mastery that really, I think, deserves to be studied and hopefully throughout the course of our ET segment and perhaps in future John Williams segments, we'll try to delve even deeper into uh, some of the aspects of, of that mastery here. Uh, next in the harmony, we have a D minor 7 sound or minor 9 sound, if you like, over again this uh, C pedal bass. And now the F natural in D minor seems to go against that Lydian sound, making this more of a straightforward diatonic chord sound. But coming from what we've just experienced, uh, it's somewhat unexpected and really quite surprising. Right. I think part of that, again, has to do with John Williams' voicing of the chord, which is exploiting those close dissonances in the horns and oboes. After that moment, we then move to an A-flat major chord, which, if we remember, is that really exciting kind of classic flat six chord that's a part of the very identity of film music, in my opinion. And again, John continues this C in the bass, which works because in this case, it is actually the third of that A-flat triad. But he goes a step further in giving color to this chord by, if we could say, major seventhifying it. Yeah. <laughs> and as we mentioned, at times, this is a common technique of Mr. Williams. Well, next, the major seventh of A-flat is lowered and becomes a minor or dominant seventh, but something really interesting happens here. The bass note moves up to a D, which is nowhere to be found in A-flat seven. This almost makes us think we're hearing some sort of altered D7 chord. We could think of it as being a D7 flat five, flat nine. Uh, in classical music, this most closely resembles what we might call a French six chord, but the resolution here is completely different. And believe it or not, this ET moment has even more notes than would be explainable that way. I think the best way to think of this chord is to imagine it in two worlds. It's basically an A flat seven chord, but with a bass note all its own. It has a contrary mission. 
And funny enough, if we imagine it still being a flat seven principally, that D in the bass can be thought of as, funny enough, a Lydian flavor. If laid out in a more functional order, we might describe it as an A flat seven sharp 11. But since it's in the bass, that naming doesn't quite fit either. I love looking at it that way, Will, with the contrary missions, and both missions actually lead to the same point in the next chord. And really the point in all of this analysis is that John Williams is evoking quite a lot of dissonance in this moment, and it requires a rather sophisticated musical understanding to explain just this one bar of harmony. And I do think we need to remember moments like these when we may encounter criticisms about Williams' music being, let's say, simple in a derogatory sense or simply a rehash of existing classical music. Yeah, it's moments like this that, to me, make the climaxes of his melodic phrases so transcendent because all that lovely dissonance is followed by such a satisfying resolution. It's so much more than just a pretty theme or just a daring harmony. More importantly, it captures the visceral experience of the character and the euphoric joy of flight. attention next to the orchestration of the piece. And again, we'll be focusing more specifically on the concert rendition of the flying theme. So we mentioned that the melody was in 3-2, but this concert arrangement actually begins in 2-2, another little bit of sleight of hand that we might not notice just listening to it. But it begins with, in my opinion, this really iconic string tremolo ostinato. It's a beautiful little idea. And actually, I don't think it's found anywhere in the film itself. I believe it was composed just for this arrangement, but really seems to capture the spirit of the movie in just a few bars. Yeah, and there's something very signature to this arrangement, I think, which is this pizzicato bass sound. It gives a lot of space for actually the more sustained texture of the low brass that we'll encounter, but there's a lightness to it, a buoyancy, if you will, to that pizzicato that is just another element, I think, evoking the feeling of flight. I think that's so true. Uh, We also have these lovely oboe and flute lines with these quick quintuplet runs that do express the Lydian fourth, but then they seem to cancel them out by naturalizing the F in the following bars. And we have these incessant horn chordal eighth notes in closed root position voicings, and they're kind of giving us that tone cluster sound that we were mentioning earlier. There's some really clever part writing that John Williams does here in terms of uh, what eighth note to let the horns rest so that the players can actually breathe, and actually the direction of the inner voices the pitches themselves don't change between the intro and when the melody comes in but what the two inner players are doing their part changes it's this very subtle thing that you would never notice sonically but i think it does affect the performance because it just makes the music that much more interesting for the players it's reminiscent of uh, some of the concepts conrad was speaking about in our last episode right taking musical ideas and transforming them into something that's playable and inspiring for uh, for a musician. When the melody comes in, we have these lovely string octaves, and the doubling here I find particularly interesting. Uh, we have viola and second violins doubling in the same octave, with cellos the octave below and violin ones the octave above. Uh, it's a three octave texture, and I find it to be a brilliant way of dividing the strings, because often 
Um, Marty, I'm sure you've encountered this, but when trying to achieve that sound in the orchestra, sometimes we might find it more intuitive to use Divisi for the violins, maybe have, you know, half of the first violins do an upper octave and then the second half maybe with the second violins. But what's great about this, it's very clear in terms of the part writing and you actually get this timbral mixture by doubling the violas and second violins and it gives almost the the strongest weight to that center of the sandwich if you will with the three (laughs) octave texture yeah i think sometimes we do overlook the impact of simply more players on a given pitch right and in a real orchestra uh that can just be so powerful. We also have these classic brass voicings, classic for John Williams particularly, uh, where we have the root, the fifth, and then in the next octave, the third and the fifth. It tends to be a really sonorous uh, voicing. So we have the tuba taking the root, the bass trombone taking the fifth, and then the two tenor trombones taking in the upper octave, the third and the fifth. And I really like this part here. It's a great mix of a sustained texture with these neat little rhythmic stabs towards the end of the bars of eighths and sixteenths. It really feels like its own part. It's not just simply sustained chords. Um, And it works well with what all the other instruments are doing. Again, he just has such great intuition for rhythmic momentum, I think. There's also this discrete clarinet doubling in the melody at first, uh, as well as oboe adding to the horn chord idea up the octave. We also have flutes tackling these scalar runs right in the sweet spot of their upper register. And eventually those uh, flutes tackle one of my favorite sort of sounds of this orchestration, which are these harmonized flute repeated note, 16th note lines. Uh, that's the wonderful double tonguing. Right. A lot of times I associate that with maybe Star Wars, but it's definitely something that feels very symphonic and very characteristic of John Williams' orchestral writing. And the moment when that kind of counter melody happens, which is actually doubled subtly with the piano in a nice way, doing more of a legato passage of the same pitches, then we switch uh, the clarinet from doing those kind of chordal ideas to this propeller sound of these legato eighth note chord ostinati. And again, it's exploiting these dissonances. They're always moving in contrary motion, and they seem to move inward to the dissonance between the second scale degree and the third scale degree in that triad. And it's it's a really lovely sound. And this is really integral to the way that John Williams and other masterful composers depict flight. We have the soaring melody, which is maybe almost the wingspan or the sort of gliding above the air. Right. But then, as you say, Will, there's this propeller or engine uh, that usually is much more subdivided right. and really incessant that really keeps us afloat. Right. In the music of Tchaikovsky, oftentimes many composers and uh, studiers of his music would notice that he would tend to have these woodwind triplet subdivisions in moment of great lyricism. Uh, this is actually a, a pair of eighth notes. So it's not that exact concept, but there is this tradition in lyrical music of when the melody is soaring in octaves, 
that the woodwinds are giving us a little bit more interesting rhythmic texture underneath. Now, eventually the bassoons enter with this sustained chord texture, uh, similarly to the trombones that we mentioned earlier. And then as we get into the B section, uh, the strings take over from that eighth note chordal idea that was happening with the horns. And we have beautiful flute and oboe unison melody here. Very sweet sound. Yeah, the rhythm of the melody itself seems to be derived from the French horn part, which had this eighth rest at the start of the bar. I know that's probably not how it was composed in the film and when John Williams wrote it, but it's something that's really brilliant about this arrangement that he kind of foreshadows the rhythm of that B melody with the horn chord part because we would have that rest in the beginning. And this section also seems to develop on the double dotted rhythm from the end of the A melody. And that also is a big feature in that sort of heroic theme towards the end of the film in the bicycle chase. Eventually, the melody turns to three octaves with clarinets and bassoons taking the lower octaves. I really love that rich, full woodwind texture that's there. Again, they're all doubling the melody in unison, but where he chooses to pair them with the flutes and oboes in the same octave really give a neat character to the sound. And it is different than the way that he doubled the strings with giving more weight to the middle. But there's something I really want to talk about. There's this wonderful moment of impact act. Uh, on the downbeat of this B section, we do some really interesting kind of harmonic sidestepping because we were in C major and we shift into this B major chord. And on that moment, uh, we have this short trombone stab on the downbeat with this very subtle glockenspiel doubling. And oftentimes when we oh, hear glockenspiel that. in orchestra music, we mentioned this maybe a few weeks ago. But often it's a melodic doubling instrument. It's about bringing out a yeah, line. Yeah, I think Carl was talking about the impact of a glockenspiel or other mallet instruments in helping to clarify a melody or something. Right, and I like the way that John uses it is it's actually two pitches. So it is giving some harmonic context, but it's just this one little stab on the downbeat. You almost imagine it was used more for its unpitched percussive character <laughs> to kind of say like, now we're in this key. It's also interesting, it seems each new uh, tonality that we shift to does evoke the Lydian mode melodically as opposed to uh, our diatonic major mode. And there's a use of third relation harmonies in this uh, B section as it develops. Uh, the flat six sound from B major to G major. And then ultimately we do this very um, abrupt modulation to E flat major when the horns take the melody with a series of interesting minor chords, G flat minor, D minor, and ultimately we find ourselves at B flat major seven with this really interesting kind of fluttering melody that's also flirting with the raised Lydian fourth scale degree. And this raised Lydian fourth then leads into our next chord, which is this uh, C diminished chord or E flat. The great thing about uh, fully diminished chords is you can label them with uh, four names because it's these right. even uh, intervals. And then that very interestingly leads us into our new key, G major. The thing about diminished chords in tonal music is because 
we don't really perceive them as having one clear root. They're great for modulating to new keys. And what's interesting about the way John approached that moment, it's very similar to the chord progression that we discussed in, say, Marion's theme, which was a right. diminished chord built on the second scale degree, because in that moment before, we were hearing this B-flat major 7, which made us feel that B-flat was the key region we were in. And then going to this C diminished sound, that felt somehow within that same tonal landscape, but yet due to the nature of that diminished chord, it helped us sort of springboard into our new key center of G major. What's interesting here is repeating an idea in the dominant key is something very common to classical music. Yet in this case, our path has been so interesting and harmonically surprising. Right. Uh, it's really, we've taken such a unique route getting here to this uh, dominant modulation. Very unconventional, yet at the same time we always feel like we're in good hands, that every chord moment is somehow satisfying, even if it's a bit challenging. And eventually this statement of the B section is truncated and used in this very daring harmonic episode which ultimately launches us back into our original key of C major. We go from this G minor major chord which is quite dissonant and evocative and eventually we find ourselves back on that same fluttery idea. The This time in E flat major going from the F diminished over A flat or a flat fully diminished however you want to think about it which we use again as another springboard getting us back into c major our original key we've come full circle and i think it's such a what a journey it's, yeah it's, it's fittingly clever but also so satisfying In addition to this theme's masterful orchestration and harmonization and really the melody itself, the impact of this theme in the film I think is further enhanced by how artfully it is introduced. Yeah, without delving too deeply into the spotting, that's really what those spotting session episodes are <laughs> right. for, the score leaves careful breadcrumbs that prepare us and eventually lead us into the first pure orchestral powerhouse statement where, you know, Spielberg's Amblin logo. Yeah, it really set up this delightful moment that just needs music to push us through. But we should mention that there's another musical statement that prepares us for the flying theme, a separate motif in the score that I really think should be viewed along with this primary theme, and it's called The Call. We know it has this name thanks to some wonderful behind-the-scenes footage, and really, there's no other film that has this sort of historical footage. With Steven Spielberg and John Williams huddled around John's piano and this moviola as they're watching footage and as they're spotting this scene, they reference the call several times. Should we use the call here? Oh, we must use the call. Yeah, I think John says... Surely that's the call there. It's it's just so terrific. Now, this motif also expresses our perfect fifth interval, again in half notes in a 3-2 measure, and again uh, ascending a perfect fifth upwards. Also, similar to our flying theme, it's followed by this sort of eighth note figure, very close to the main theme, but here it's a sextuplet. 
Tonally, this little motif emphasizes the Lydian mode, um, that signature raised fourth scale degree. And I, I do think that this statement is what sort of helps prepare our ear for expecting Lydian so often within the flying theme. Now, uh, often in the score, this particular theme is unaccompanied by any harmony. Uh, when harmony does enter, Williams constructs one of the most fascinating sounding chord structures possibly of his career, which would be saying something. Uh, what it is, is it's a tonic chord, but with a minor third in the bass. To demonstrate, ladies and gentlemen, a brief piano etude for piano four hands played by Will and myself. <laughs> that was fun. Having been prepared for multiple reels by the call motif, when he finally unveils the flying theme with its beautiful song-like melody and glorious harmony and orchestration, it couldn't be more powerful. this scene it seems never to last as long as he's like time just flies by and that's absolutely been the case today as both will and i have had the treat to examine one of our favorite pieces of music in the world we can't thank you enough for joining us today and also for enduring a somewhat out of character break in the show. Yeah, as we mentioned in that little update mini-sode, we really are going to try to keep a through line of episodes when we're in the middle of a film subject, and if for whatever reason, just due to you know our own personal lives and schedules, if we do ever need to take a brief week off, it'll be between films. So you can expect a nice month-long ride for E.T., and we hope that you join us in the following weeks to come. We do have a few announcements for the show that we would like to reiterate. One of them being that we recently launched a Patreon page, which means that if you are so inclined and you're enjoying the show and you would like to support us on Patreon and become a patron, you are free to do that. And we have a few tiers of rewards. If you're interested, uh, feel free to head to patreon.com slash underscore podcast, one word. And the rewards we'll mention uh, are these. At the $1 a month level, you'd get access to downloads of the theme music for underscore. Uh, there's a piece of mine and a piece of Will's. And also an up-to-date PDF of what we call the underscore supplement, which includes bonus features for each of our film subjects thus far. We'll strive to keep this as up-to-date as possible. So as you're hearing this, this should also include today's bonus feature. A $4 a month contribution would include the previous rewards, as well as a special credit where we would thank you at the end of each episode. The final tier, which is at $7 a month, uh, would include a critique of one to two pieces of your own original music with your choice of either private or broadcasted feedback, as well as all of the first and second tier rewards. As always, you can find every episode of this show as well as our supplementary materials at our website, underscorepodcast.com. If you have any questions, thoughts, or suggestions for the show, you can send us an email to show at gmail.com. And we'd like to thank our patrons who make the show possible, including Carlos, Jackie, 
Jordan Kolosinski, and Desmond Clark. You can follow us on all manner of social media, Facebook, YouTube, and you can follow us on Twitter at underscore underscore show. The second underscore is silent. That's all for this week, everybody. Until next time. And remember, we listen because we love. Take care. Underscore is part of the Marcado Brothers Podcast Network.